Hello, Valparaiso. This is Allison Schutte. And Willa Walsh, and you're listening to... Welcome Project Radio. The Welcome Project collects first-person stories and pairs them with facilitated conversation to help participants forge stronger ties within and across communities. We vision a world in which people are curious about and actively seek to engage those who are different from themselves. We are proudly underwritten by Asini Yoga Center and Roots Market Cafe, two great ways to feel good this season. They're located online at asinacenter.com and rootsmarketcafe.com. And thanks to Kelly and Michael Marakna, who believe in supporting diversity, learning, and growth. Theme music is provided <laughs> by WVLP's very own Paul Schreiner. Thanks, Paul. So today we're playing two stories from the Welcome Project's archive titled I Know Dirt and Eliminated by Technology. And so for me, the through line of these stories is like the storyteller's love of the land. And I thought to bring them into conversation after our passing the Baton event, which was last weekend. And during that, um, a question was asked from the audience about, you know, are there stories we wish we would have collected during the time of the Welcome Project? And um, environmentalism came up as one of those topics. And I just it got me thinking. I'm like, huh, we haven't played those stories in a while. We do have a few that are tagged under that. Um, but I thought I would just go through and look. And we haven't talked about these ones before. And what do you know, I realized yesterday that today's Earth Day, so it seems pretty fitting that we have this little combo today. You want to get started with the first story? Yes, but I do want to just let listeners know that there's a new system in the studio, so I do have a concern that when we try to play the story, we will not be playing the story, which means we might need to be reading the transcript. Oh, okay, cool. Um, but let's give it a go. Yeah, so, let's do it. Free this, mixing today. This one's the I Know Dirt. Mm-hmm. All right. <clears throat> this is the transcript for I Know Dirt. I grew up in a very rural area of northern Wisconsin. I grew up in, in a very rural area of northern Wisconsin. And farming has always been just a stone's throw away from my reality. I have relatives that farmed. I grew up farming with those relatives mostly dairy, milking cows and doing small animals, that sort of thing. When I moved here, I was absolutely smitten with the landscape, how open it becomes just five miles south of town. These expansive horizons and the flatness actually is, is really attractive to me. It's like being on an ocean. Most people are, are like, oh, I hate the flatland. It's so boring and this and that. It's like, but you always go to the ocean. There's nothing flatter than the ocean, and there's nothing out there. You know, that, that paradox has always been kind of interesting to me. But when my husband and I decided that we wanted to move out of town, um, he's a city boy from the south side of Chicago, and he didn't know the difference between corn and soybeans when, when we met. And that's fine, but I told him, it's like, let's get a farm. Let's buy some property and build a house. He wanted to build a house. It's like, well, that's great, but I'm not living in any subdivision, never. And so he's like, okay, we'll buy some acres. When I found out about this property, because of urban sprawl in in the part of the county that we live in, buying a large parcel of ground is very financially restrictive because a lot of the big developers would go in and they would buy these acreages 
and then they would subdivide them and, and break them into parcels that would appease county zoning. And then you'd have 100 houses on a, a certain piece of ground. But in the past, our acreage was not capable of doing that kind of, of uh, subdivision because the people that owned it before us, they inherited it and as they needed money, they would sell off one acre on the road and then they'd sell off an acre next to that on the road and another acre until they sold off all but a driveway. And the driveway was not wide enough to be accessible according to county variant standards and so they couldn't sell off the inside perimeter to a subdivision. So we bought it as unimproved agricultural ground for ag prices, not as subdivision prices. And that is how we, we were able to purchase that farm. And then we were farming it with Jeff, he's our farmer, and we do a cash rent situation, which means that he basically farms it and he pays us rent to do that. When we were looking for the land, I knew right away that that land was spectacular because I know dirt. I don't know everything about dirt, but I know what I can grow my garden in. And I knew that if I was to grow a garden in this piece of ground, it would be a fabulous garden. The soil samples came back and it's Anago silt loam, which is some of the finest soil that you can ever have to grow anything in. I asked Dave at the John Deere dealer what he knew about this piece of ground and he knew a lot more vernacular folklore that surrounded it. As we've learned after farming it for now more than probably 14 years, we have some of the highest soybean yields in the county and it's because of the soil. Nobody outproduces us. People maybe produce as much as we do but nobody can, can boast a higher yield. And corn, we're doing great on corn too. There are higher yields elsewhere in the county, but for the most part, we're, we're really doing very well too. The benefit of having such great soil is we don't do a lot of, of upkeep on our soil other than crop rotation and liming it. We don't do a lot of fertilizing. We don't do a lot of pesticides or any other kind of chemical which means that you know it's a healthy piece of ground, which means that we're living surrounded by healthy ground as well. We built our house there, and we built a shed there, and we are now living in the midst of a cornfield or a soybean field, depending on which year we're talking about. We're living in the midst of a corn or soybean field, depending on which year we're talking about. All right, thanks, Willow. Mm -hmm. So um, this is Listen Up. Welcome Project Radio on WVLP 103.1 FM and streaming live online. Today, um, we're pulling two stories that we haven't really talked about before. And for Willow, that had to do with uh, the theme of Earth Day mm -hmm. and thinking about, yeah, what is our relationship maybe to the Earth in these different ways? Yeah. What did you notice in reading this particular storyteller's account, did anything pop out from being the person like embodying <laughs> the story? I mean, it, it is kind of crazy because like hearing it and saying it are two totally yeah. different things. And um, 
I don't know, like even just sort of saying it out loud, it's just you can really tell how excited they were to have this piece of ground and like their ability to farm it. And what stood out to me is, you know, maybe I wonder like, you know, where they are. It sounds like they're a little bit outside of Chicago, um, near Illinois, maybe. And I just, oh, this isn't this is in Malden. Oh, is it really? I actually know where it oh is. Oh my gosh! I mean, <laughs> so it's really close. Oh, yeah. okay. So, oh, well, that even worries me then, because then it's like, okay, well, then even right here in town, like our ag land is just being sort of like subdivided away for all of these like subdivisions. I don't know, and that kind of sucks, right? Yeah. And so it's like, and they even acknowledge it here too that like we were able to buy it for ag prices, which is usually significantly lower than what you would buy it for like a developer price. Um, and so I don't know. So it's just like, it's, it's, it seems like this sort of like fleeting ability, maybe like this won't be a possibility in like a few years or like 10 years to be able to have like this amount of space and land. So it just feels like a, I don't know, like we're zooming in on this point of time and this Mm -hmm. piece of soil and this ground. And it just feels really present to me. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting to think about because the storyteller, um, in finding out that the soil was in fact as sort of brilliant as she had anticipated based on her own intuitive knowledge. Well, not just intuitive knowledge, but hard earned knowledge of good soil. Like to think about that being turned into, what did she say? I'm not gonna live in a subdivision never. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like, is that the best use, you know, if it's that rich and fertile, like, Um, but I'm guessing, you know, like that's not what's on the developers minds at all. Um, and maybe even beyond the developers, it's not what's on like city official minds, whether that be Valpo or Couts or Malden, um, cause you're thinking about growth. And I mean, this is a part of American economic system. Like it's always about more, right. And attracting Mm -hmm people who will bring in more kind of things. So yeah, it's sad to think about um, the possibility of the land not being in the relationship that it wants to be. Although, and I have to admit, like I'm not gonna be able to do a lot of um, discussion about agriculture because I have very limited knowledge, but I feel like we hear a lot about like huge ag and how that is like depleting the soil and especially in its reliance on things like pesticides and fertilizer. And I know this storyteller is um, saying we don't do a lot of that and um, that's going to help maintain the ground. So it's also interesting to recognize this person as a small farmer um, in terms of like that if, if on one side we might critique developers for encroaching on land, like on the other side, I feel like we would want to critique large ag for the industry um, scale size of it. Um, and then here, this storyteller sits right in the middle of that. Yeah, I really like that. I, I mean, I... I... I think they're making, the storyteller here is making a really good case for why we should know what's around us. Mm. Like I just, and I and I know that it probably has something to do with our like K through 12 education system needing to be like 
on some sort of nationalized, like, you know, easy to transfer between states sort of thing. But, oh my gosh, like, I just, I know I've said this before, but I'm just, like, so mad that I don't know what the trees are outside of my house. Or, like, I don't, you know, it's just like I had to look up what what we're farming in Indiana. It's like, I can tell corn, you know, I know that soybeans are the little bushy things, but mm-hmm. if, it, if they were anything else, I wouldn't be able to identify them as soybeans, you know? And so I think it's just like, and I think you make a good point about like the price of the land too. Cause it's like, if we all grew up in like the school systems around here and we knew like, just like a little bit about like, what does it mean to have good soil or you know, like, what is good soil or what is good land or how do we use this land? Or like, what does it mean to like dig up a wetland and put a subdivision there and have sub pumps in everybody's houses? Like, it's like, I feel like if we, if we sort of had that appreciation growing up, then we would sort of be able to appreciate that as we move into different roles in our lives, like land developers and mm. things. Like we just have that sort of consciousness going into it. And then we would be able to protect this. Like, can you imagine if the people who had the farm before they did you know if they hadn't have sold off some of those parcels they wouldn't have been able to buy that land and that land just would be a subdivision today and it's like i'm sure that's the case for like hundreds of subdivisions right that they're probably sitting on like prime land and so i don't know it's just like for me this just says like if we knew what was there we would be maybe be able to like prevent some of this or we would just be able to be more knowledgeable about where we're building and i don't know what decisions we're making do you think you know why the storyteller says I'm not living in any subdivision, never? I just watched a John Oliver episode about HOAs, and that's what my mind uh, went to. But I, I'm, I'm sure the speaker probably isn't thinking Well, because not every that. subdivision necessarily has one. But yeah, but say more about what that is and oh, what yeah. the critique is. Oh, yeah. So, no, so like an HOA, I don't even know what it stands. Do you know what it stands for? I think it's housing... Oh, no, I don't. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, but, like, I feel like we know what HOAs are, right? They're, like, the things that were born out of, like... um, Homeowners associations. Yeah, homeowners associations. Yes, thank you. Um, But, like, essentially, like, I mean, I always critique those things because those were born out of, like, you know, deeds that white communities would create to, like, explicitly say, like, oh, you're white, so you will never be able to sell your house to a black person due to this HOA regulation. But actually, like, last year, I think, John Oliver said um, that, like, over 80% of houses that were sold in the market were sold with an HOA. Oh. Which is so surprising to me. But anyway, but they, they do a lot of things where they really sort of control, like, what you can do with your land. Like, I would never go into one, but maybe I would have to because I wouldn't be able to afford a house otherwise. But, like, you couldn't maybe turn your lawn into a clover lawn or you couldn't do, like, sort of native gardening or there are some, there are some that are, like, you have to have six bushes, seven trees, six <laughs> small ferns. I don't know. You know, it's just it can get really crazy like that. Um, but so, I mean, for me, that would be one reason not to live in a subdivision. Um, so that's your reason. What about the my... storyteller? <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm I think... sort of inferring based, yeah. on, based on what she says because we, we're not really sure. I mean, it sounds that she she's comfortable being on a farm and she's yeah. comfortable seeing that, like, flatness she talks about the flatness and like comparing it to like the ocean which to her she's like if you love the ocean why wouldn't you love this flat ground there's everything here but I don't know what do you think yeah I think it probably has to do with farming too and and think about the difference between a living farm and a manicured Mm, mm -hmm. HOA controlled subdivision Mm -hmm. (laughs) right like nothing about the manicured subdivision allows for like, I mean, I'm sure there's life that happens in the family and things like that. But like the actual 
cycles that life requires in terms of the messiness of birth and like all of the taking care of the animal's needs in terms of um, feed and if they get sick and you know that's mucky Um, and so if you are used to dwelling in that and cherish dwelling in that then I would think something about the yeah, the cultivation that happens in a subdivision would be aesthetically deadening to you. Mm-hmm. So that might be one guess. I also wonder if, I feel like subdivisions, I mean, I suppose like in Valparaiso, there are quite a few that they have a, a kind of a large amount of space that the house is sitting on. Mm-hmm. But still, most subdivisions, it's like the developers are trying to economize like or uh, like be really efficient with how much they can make per dwelling So you're going to be close to your neighbors. And if this storyteller, um, did we actually hear a number of how many acres they have? I don't, I don't know if she actually tells us the amount in this part of the story, but if they have somebody farming for them, like they have a relationship with a farmer, Mm -hmm. Jeff, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, then that means there's, a pretty big expanse of land around them. And so I think the fact of like space and size, and also this storyteller talks about liking the flatland, right? I think you mentioned that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like this storyteller also wants that, that horizon line mm-hmm. to be pretty, mm-hmm. to be pretty broad. Um, and so I think that would be difficult in a subdivision where the horizon is pretty quickly broken up by that, the houses that are around you and the landscaping, whatever that might be for the the people who live in the subdivision. I wonder, um, this is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio with me, Allison Schutte and Willa Walsh. And it's Earth Day today. So I feel like, I was just going to say, like, I don't know that my relationship with the environment is as strong as I want it to be either. You were mentioning this before, Willow, like, I also didn't grow up knowing the names of plants and trees and like even like basic ones. I mean, maybe that's not true. Like I know a daffodil, I know a tulip, <laughs> I know a maple yeah, tree, Yeah. <laughs> but I do have these flowering trees outside the front of my current house. And, um, I, I even think I've looked it up before and I still don't remember, you know, like, and it just feels wrong that you can't have a, that kind of like like when you know somebody's name you mm-hmm. it's not like the name is all of who they are but it I think Walt Wongren used to say this he was a, a writer and then a professor at the university for a, a long time and he would talk about when you know the name and he was thinking sometimes about characters in 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 fiction then you know how to to form a relationship with that person and he was also thinking about it for like he also did a lot with children's literature so he was thinking about how a child who knows the name like of a character in a book can then form a relationship enter into relationship is maybe how he would put it and so I think there's something about for those of us who don't know names of um, what is around us um, our what is like our basic support uh, we're not in very thick relationship with it then. So, uh, yeah, I feel like Earth Day, woohoo! But then I'm like, 
wow, my woohoo is maybe like a kind of woke woohoo, you know, like, (laughs) um, there's like some work I have to do with really knowing more about our planet, um, as opposed to just knowing that we're kind of messing it up. (laughs) Well, I think too, like you talk about relationships and I think about like, um, uh, through my last position, I met a farmer, Jim, who like has a small farm that he does himself with a couple other folks. And it's right, like it's still in Valpo. It's over in like South Haven. Um, it's like right off of six. And he was saying that he does mostly, you know, he rotates between corn and soybeans. And when he does corn, he sends all of the corn over to Cargill and Hammond for it to be turned into like cornstarch, I think. And I thought that was so amazing. <laughs> like he just said it so like flippantly. And I was like, yeah. what? Like that's like... You know, because it's just like, you know, when you're sort of creating those like through lines and like creating those relationships, I don't just see Cargill as this like standalone thing, Mm. this like factory that, you know, but it's like, oh, this is like local things are going into this and then that thing will go into something. I don't know. It's just like that makes me care about it more to like understand that it can be so local like that or that it can have such an impact. And I think like, you know, with that missing knowledge piece, I don't know. I feel like that can help us like have a deeper relationship if we know that, if we know like where the food is going and who's mm-hmm. growing it, where it's growing. I, I think that's so valuable because then we can sort of appreciate it more what's around us, you know, because if we're in a mindset where we don't know, you know, right now I don't know a whole lot. I don't know if, you know, if we take that, like a take a cornfield down or something and then we turn it into a subdivision, like what does that mean locally? Like is that, was that farm producing a bunch of corn off product for Cargill or something and will that affect that I don't know it's just it's sort of interesting because like once you can sort of see the relationships you can sort of understand what kind of larger impact it can have on the community so I'm just recognizing that I don't have that information yeah 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 (laughs) um I actually am really interested in the part of the story where she talks about you know having a farmer Jeff um and the cash rent situation Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to reread part of this, um, which means that he basically farms it and he pays us rent to do that. Okay, so then he would reap the benefits or the whatever he sells it for is his and he's just renting the land. Okay, so then when we were looking for the land, I knew right away, oh, then she just goes right away into how spectacular the land was. Yeah, and you know, here's a storyteller who does know names, right? The soil samples came back and it's Anagon, Silt Loam. I'm not even sure. Sounds fancy. If we're <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like the good stuff. Um and the, I asked Dave at the John Deere dealer what he knew about this piece of ground. And he knew a lot more vernacular folklore that surrounded it as we've learned after farming it now for more than probably 14 years, we have some of the highest soybean yields in the county. Um, and then she talks about corn, too. Isn't that interesting? She says, as we've learned after farming it. So this relationship with the farmer, it feels like it's not just an economic exchange of, like, renter and owner. There's something more going on. The story doesn't really dive into that too much, but I'm curious about the intimacy of that relationship too and guessing at least in part that that's possible because the storyteller herself has a, a, a background in farming. So they must be able to, t- to talk, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like with each other, um, 
as equals, you know, like, um, and, and equally invested, if it, if it is in fact land that she herself values, then she's not just renting it, right? Like she wants that land itself to remain plush and fertile, mm-hmm. um, because she has a, a commitment to the land itself, not just to what it can produce. I have actually, so I lived, when I was in high school, I lived in Wanata for two years. And um, we lived in this, like, house where the houses were, like, you know, half mile apart. And the place where we were at, like, the house was situated on, like, a nice, that's, like, there was a, all grass in the front yard. But then the backyard and, like, both of the side yards were all, like, um, farmland for rent. And I, I mean, just, I mean, I was a kid at the time, so I don't know. I don't have, like, <laughs> but I remember it being fun when the guy would come because, like, mm-hmm. some days you would just wake up and you wouldn't really know what the plan was, you know, for, the like, what the farmer was going to do. And so sometimes you'd just wake up and he'd be, like, out there tilling the soil or something or, like, there he'd, like, be planting something. or And then you could just sort of walk up at the edge of the yard and, like, see these soybeans. And it felt so cool, like, to be able to touch them. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know, but... It was, I don't know, I remember it being nice because then, like, he would come over and talk about, like, oh, yeah, the crops are really good. You know, I don't know, you know, just talking about how it's, how farming is going that year. I don't know. I remember it being really sweet. I liked it. Yeah. It was a nice relationship. It was just, and especially since, like, you know, in a subdivision, you might have more neighbors. Doesn't mean you're more neighborly, I think. I, I, I actually, I knew more of my neighbors living in Wanita than I did Interesting. in Valpo because you're just so far apart and so yeah. you just really know people and so I think that there's something fun about somebody sort of coming in and farming your land because it's like hey neighbor what's going on I don't know it seems really nice to me yeah we know from other stories we have from farmers and couts um on the welcome project um that we that that farmers are at least the the farmers here and a lot of it's because they're extended families but um there's a lot of cooperation Right. Like mm-hmm. it's a it's an industry, at least at the scale the storytellers were doing it at, where you need your neighbors. Um, so there's a sense of um, like pitching in. A, we, you and I read the book um, by Daniel Chemis. I'm, I'm forgetting the name um, now. Community and the Politics of yeah, Place. And the barn raising mm-hmm. concept, which maybe there's less barn raising happening right like in 2023 but there's still a lot of the equivalent of that in terms of like how you're bringing your crops in and when you're bringing them in and things like that so um i think that the sense of what it means to be a neighbor in that environment is very different than yeah you might chat with a neighbor that you live next door to and that can be a nice social grease Mm -hmm. but there isn't the you know like you or don't like you, it's time to bring the crops in. So, yeah, yeah. you know, we better pull together kind of thing. Um, this is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio at WVLP 103.1 FM in Valparaiso. Community-supported radio, also streaming live from WVLP.org. We rely on donations from individuals, businesses, and other organizations in order to continue to spread the word that ongoing volunteer-driven local media leads to a better community. Please consider supporting this station by visiting the website wvlp.org backslash support. 
Donations are tax deductible, and we at Listen Up Welcome Project Radio would sure appreciate it. So I am Allison, and Willow's with me today. We are without our companion, Reagan. Uh, missing you, Reagan. And today on Listen Up, in honor of Earth Day, we have been um, listening first to a story about um, being really invested in the land and having a relationship to it through farming. Is there anything we want to say about this particular story before we, we try the next one? I think we should jump in. I think we can pull from it as we go on. Okay. So I'm going to try again with our our little soundboard yeah, here and see, <laughs> see how it goes. So <laughs> this story is called Eliminated by Technology.
This is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio, with me, Allison Schutte, and Willow Walsh. And this is WVLP 103.1 FM, also streaming live online at WVLP.org. Today, it's Earth Day, and so Willow has chosen some stories from our archives that bring us into some kind of conversation or awareness of the environment. Um, I feel like I'm pretty sure that the first part of the story wasn't live, so I wonder if we can just read maybe yeah. the first part of the transcript. Yeah. Um, just that first like paragraph there. Yeah. So the first paragraph is: first time I went the first time I went in the steel mill was 1969. I came home from college to work in Christmas break. I worked at Republic Steel where my dad was. It was a smaller mill. And it was an eye-opening thing. The locker room there had this much standing water on the floor. You had to stand on wooden pallets to wash your hands. And I always wondered why my dad would come home dirty. And really, you know, why don't you take a shower in the mill? Well, when I got there, I saw why. It, it was awful. It was a pigsty. The working conditions as far as hygiene was awful. And that all changed, too, over the years. But Okay, and then he goes into coming back from college and starting to work in the mill and, and meeting the older old women (laughs) which he does acknowledge now they would not be old in his mind because he himself when he's recollecting is the old person in the room (laughs) um yeah so uh, did you have something that drew you to this particular one in a you know kind of in addition to the thinking about Earth Day or... Yeah, well, I mean, I it, it, it seemed like a natural fit to me, especially because of, you know, where the story left off. Um, I love the line, you know, we don't want to leave them a ball of garbage as a planet. We want to do it because it's the right thing to do. And I think that's... And I, and I you know, I want to recognize that because I think, you know, that... I, I, I feel like the first storyteller would agree with that, right? Like, we want to preserve the world and not make it worse. You know, it's so beautiful. But I, I really love what this storyteller is doing, too, because he really has this insight into, like, you know, what it means to, like, work in the industrial areas of the region and, like, you know, how important that is for jobs and mm. at the same time is also able to hold, like, yeah, they're just dumping stuff in the river and whatever. But um, I don't know. It's just it's sort of, I don't know. I feel like it, it's an insider perspective, maybe. He's just more empathetic towards industry. And I think that's, like, very... Very true to this region. I mean, like, I too feel that. Like, I don't know. There's just, like, I can on one hand understand that the mills, like, produce a lot of pollution. But at the same time, it's, like, growing up here forever. It's, like, the motto is always, like, if you want a good-paying job, you go to the mill. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. So I just, I love that he was able to hold those two ideas at the same time. Yeah, I was reminded of, I feel like, the way miners talk about working the mines. Like... The work itself is like cruel, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it actually because of the uh, what you're breathing into your lungs for miners, it's not only physically cruel, like kind of in the moment um, and dangerous, but it then produces these long-term health effects, which seriously impact your quality of life. And yet, there's this um, like because it's so hard and you have like demanded of yourself a certain kind of stamina, it's like there's an identity now that's totally rooted Mm -hmm. in the minds. And so you, like as a a 
as a liberal progressive who, you know, would want us to see, want to see us moving away from fossil fuels. You know, I, I always wish that more mines would close or that we would shift, yeah, shift away from that kind of um, fuel. But at the same time, like I understand from the point of view of the the residents and the people who work in the mines that it's it's just like I don't even know if to say it's more complicated than that is is accurate you mm-hmm. know it's just like there's there's different sets of values operating at the same time and like how do you really live <laughs> in competing values um and so I think I think the same thing seems to be true for the mill, uh, for many people who work at the mill. Like even this storyteller um, at one point says, I don't know of anybody that thought working in the mill was a drudge. Well, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> However, they didn't think it was abnormal or abhorrent. It's like, so it's the culture you come up in. Mm-hmm. It's like what's expected of you. You know, like if you're a kid, maybe you've seen your parent do it. And then he goes on to say like, it's funny because he'll say one thing and he'll switch and then he'll say it the other side again. So it was just something you did. You did it. It wasn't, they weren't mad at the mill, so to speak. Oh, I'm sure there were other people that were mad at the mill, <laughs> but most people, nah, they were grateful to have a job. So again, this, this sort of value you have for like making a living and, and having a, a livable wage and being able to go home to your family and feel like you're contributing to the life of the family and um, having enough for the house that you want or the vacation you might want or um, whatever activities your children might want to be in or giving back to the community. Um, you know, that all comes through the paycheck. So there's a kind of commitment to the employer at some level. Um, it's interesting because this storyteller doesn't talk at all about labor unions versus management um it's not part of this particular story that he's telling us but i we we do have another storyteller um who remembered working at the mill incredibly fondly as like i he he called it a family and would remember some of the like um big seasonal ways that the mill would like throw parties for the workers and the families. And it really felt like it from that storyteller's perspective that the workers were being cherished and valued and um, included in something as opposed to, I don't hear anybody talking about mill work that way today. And I don't think that the corporate headquarters or if it's, that makes it sound like it might be far away. Even the managers, like, I don't think they have that kind of relationship with workers anymore. It's not, how do we give you perks? Although that's interesting because, like, isn't the IT sector do that now for their, mm. like, you always hear, like, Google and Microsoft would have all the, like, beanbag <laughs> couches <laughs> and, like, you go and get your, like, gummy worms or your mixed nuts at the, like, bulk food section or something and, need to need a yoga break no problem so maybe there are employers that still have that kind of relationship to their workers but it seems to be dependent on um like uh money coming in you know like 
And as soon as things get tight, or maybe, I don't know, the economy changes so that the um, investors start to say, like, we want more of the profits, then that forces a change in how you relate to your labor, too. But I don't know, we're going way, way, <laughs> way off the topic of this particular storyteller. But Well, I mean, I think, like, what he does talk about is, like, how communal it is. Like, I mean... Okay, well, I know I've listened to this history a lot, but there, Gary was named after the person who founded the steel yeah. mills? Okay, yeah. Well, the city, at least. The city, and yeah. Actually, now that you say that, I'm like, what was his relationship to U.S. Steel? I know, I'm not right? 100% I was sure. Like, I thought he was the owner of it that. It probably is. Anyway, but what so essentially, it's like, that. there is, um, like... I, I'd say, like, Gary and probably around there is kind of like a company town type atmosphere. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so it sort of grew out of that. And so, like, you know, you would just have, I would assume, like, swaths of people who's, like, that was the income for the family. And so you just have this sort of, like, shared experience of, like, you know, having a grimy dad come home every day. And, like, you know, but, like, if and I, I think it's this storyteller, too, um, but in a different story, he talks about, like, hearing the whistles yeah. out in, like, the world during the shift changes for the mill. And so it was just, it seems like something that, like, working for the mill was so, like, I don't know, really taking communities, like, pulling them together in a way. And what's interesting is that I was going to um, rent a house in East Chicago, like, a couple years ago. And I looked at a couple different ones of them, and I saw that so many of them have, like, a random shower and, like, okay. an unfinished basement. <laughs> and, like, I was like, what is up with that? And I, and I happened to be touring one, like, while the contractors were there, like, doing some work. And I was like, what's up with that? And he's like, did you know that actually most houses in East Chicago that were built during this time have just a random shower in the basement because the nasty mill dads needed to come home yeah, and shower yeah. before going upstairs. And so it's like, that's even ingrained in the architecture of these houses. And so I think there's something really communal about sharing like this industry like that. And so, you, so on one hand, it's sort of like the, the speaker sort of describes it as communal and describes it as people going to the mill. And even though it's like dirty, it's not abhorrent, you know, it's not unusual to be working there. And so it's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of like pulling people together in like a good way, but at the same time, dumping crap into the river. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think part of it is like, he gives the number 29,000 people used to work in the mill, and that would be another number to fact check, but it's it's pretty close to what it was at one point. And so if you think about 29,000 people, and that's just the workers, not necessarily the families associated with those workers as well then that is a, a large swath of people having a common experience. Mm -hmm. And if you shrink that to, uh, he said 8,000, which I think it's even fewer than that now. Now I can't even see that number. Um, 8,000. Mm -hmm. 8,000. Um, like that's, that's not a shared experience in the same way anymore, especially yeah. if automation is taking over uh, X number of jobs then your relationship as a worker to the labor you're doing is probably also um, abstracted in some way. Like maybe you're running a machine doing the thing that mm -hmm. like 10 people used to do. So I think even for people who might still be, you know, wanting to work at the mill, because it is still a good paying job, like it's not going back to the neighborhood and that's the same yeah. ex shared experience. So that might be another way in which community has eroded that then the 
it, whether or not the management is trying to do anything on the like campus of the industry, like it's not being fostered back at home either in the neighborhoods. So that, you know, the ripples are definitely pretty big. Yeah. And we know from a different storyteller who uh, worked for the city of Gary that um, in her estimate, like most people who work for the mill aren't living in Gary or East Chicago anymore. They're, they're commuting in. Yeah. So it's even, so it's 8,000 is a smaller number, but that's not even like 8,000 families in Gary. That's just like regional. So it's, yeah. Yeah. So it's like, much it's so much more dispersed. Yeah. 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 So you can't share that anymore. I don't know. What do you think of, um, he was talking about um, environmental consciousness and then he was saying like we this ship doesn't change like a motorcycle it takes a big arc how did you take that it's pretty accurate you know like the kind of infrastructure that is in place to have the mill functioning in the way that it was I mean it's just enormous I wish I could remember the size of the property that yet U.S. Steel is on I, I feel like in some of my research, it was like the size of Manhattan. Oh <laughs> I just, I don't trust my memory. So again, <laughs> folks, fact check us out there. But I mean, that and that's not like barren land. It's like land with like enormous buildings and enormous machines on it, which mm-hmm. in part, at least as I've understood it, either from my research or talking with other mill workers, like the shift to automation was as late as it was because there was already the investment in the infrastructure that was there. And while America wasn't experiencing competition in steel making, for example, there wasn't like a demand or a need, or in the case of the environment, legislation and fines. But as soon as there's an external uh, factor that's like challenging your ability to produce and make a profit at the at the rate that you were then you do start to make changes but with something that enormous yeah you you know you just can't even if even if you start turning the actual like I don't know on a ship the steering wheel (laughs) like it probably doesn't even look like a wheel anymore right it's like a bunch of buttons or something but that big 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 enormous body like, it's just, like, not as nimble as a motorcycle. Mm-hmm. And I think I we hear people talking about that now with the shift away from the fossil fuel economy. Like, it's taken as long as it has. And I don't know how much of this is an excuse exactly or how much it's just the way our economy, a capitalist economy, drives things. But, you know, like, to actually get the electric vehicles that we're going to need, that's a whole new manufacturing process, a whole new mining process, and, like, where we're getting the minerals for all that, you know, like, and then there's a whole global economy and, like, a competition for, like, those resources. So, like, there's a whole new infrastructure that's going to be built, and then probably we're going to be finding out, like, I, I already, ha- like, I have a student who's researching, like, the economic impact that happens with electric vehicles too. And she's like, it's not as uh, clear cut as, as progressives would, would want it to be. Like there's an environmental green, uh, like footprint that happens in the making of the electric mm. vehicles too. And then we have the whole thing about batteries. And so they're not, um, they're not going to be like the, the one 
change that brings our environment back into balance. It's a less harmful in the long run kind of thing. So I think about that with that ship turning too. Like not only is it harder to move to like from fossil fuel to a uh, solar, um, wind, et cetera, et cetera. Um, like even as we invest in those new industries, they're not going to be the final landing place either. So we're like creating another huge ship, right? Like it's, I just think with the number of people in our country and the globe, maybe you can't have enough motorcycles. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Like, could you, (laughs) I don't know what that would look like, you know, like there's so much that goes into making steel. I don't know if you could have a bunch of little motorcyclists, like, Like, it's not like home brewing, you know? Like, we could all learn how to brew our own beer. Um, I don't know if we could all learn how to make our own steel. <laughs> steel. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <sighs> I don't know. I'm still so divided on how I feel about the mills. Because on one hand, it's like, yes, there's environmental degradation that has happened. But also, yes, I value it highly as a local industry that provides jobs. And also a local example of what really strong unions look like. Yeah. Like our like the United Steelworkers Union came out to support the unionization of Starbucks and they said, "Let us know what you need. We'll show up. We'll be there when you strike." And that is so powerful and so helpful to have that in the region. Yeah. You know. But at the same time, it's like when you go and swim in Lake Michigan, it's like mm. This water tastes a little, tastes a little off. I don't know. <laughs> and then there are the days you really just shouldn't be swimming in. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I don't know. You know, but but I, I really like the this storyteller's take on it. I think we can hold both at the same time. It reminds me of what you had said about when the um, lakeshore had become a national park, yeah. and how everybody was complaining about yeah. you know all these steel mills, and it's like, wait a minute, I've uh, I've always seen those steel mills. You, you can't say that about my steel mills. <laughs> Yeah, the that's where that that identity piece yeah. comes in. Like I even yeah, I totally feel that. Like, you know, don't like come in from New York and be like you want your lakes to be just pristine and beautiful. Like we we work we work for a living over here, you yeah, know. Yeah. Like so, but it is like the at what cost, yeah. right? Like can yeah. we have can we have more of what we want? Can we have more of it all? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, and <laughs> I, I think so, right? Because I, I just am gonna like go back to like the, the managers, the CEOs, and the people, the investors who are just like demanding so much of the profit. Like you don't need it. Mm-hmm. You don't need all of that. Mm-hmm. Like you can be reinvesting that in technology that is going to be better for the workers, better for the environment. So there's just a lot of greed that's in the way. Mm-hmm. That's in the way still, too. Final thought? Let's see. Well, I mean, I feel like we should pitch something for Earth Day here. Like, I was thinking today, I mean, I was just buying seeds the other day, and I was thinking about, you know, like, it wasn't until my last job that I learned about native plants and, like, what mm-hmm. it means to create, like, pollinator corridors. And we we're talking about, you know, the manicured lawns of subdivisions. And so people oftentimes go towards um, invasive species because they're really beautiful. Um, but what you can do to help your pollinators this year is as you're going to buy some plants in the next month is get some native plants because the birds and the bees and the butterflies will love that. And then they'll have a spot to go in between on their travels. That's what you can do. That's a wonderful thing. Awesome. And then plants. there'll be some more critters whose names you can learn. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> oh, make the ecosystem. 
So as we're heading out today, we invite you to check out WVLP's full schedule at WVLP.org. And we highly recommend Morning Black, which airs live every Saturday morning at 8 a.m. and is replayed Thursdays at 2 and Fridays at 9. Building Leaders and Cultural Knowledge, which is what Morning Black stands for, focuses on the concerns and issues that impact underrepresented communities of color with a particular interest in the African-American communities within Western culture. So please tune in to Morning Black. And um, as a reminder, like these shows can all be found live streaming online. So if you don't hear it on Saturday morning at 8, you're going to be able to hear it Thursdays at 2 and Fridays at 9. So that's it for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to our sponsors, Asana Yoga Center at asanacenter.com and Roots Market Cafe at rootsmarketcafe.com. Both are also open for business at their locations downtown on Lincoln Way. You can visit their websites to learn more. We here at Welcome Project Radio love to support our local businesses. And thanks to Kelly and Michael Marakna, who believe in supporting diversity, learning, and growth. You can find us online at welcomeproject.valpo.edu and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to support WVLP in our show, you can make a donation by going to wvlp.org support. 